Well, Father, we do ask that you would give us this morning humble hearts to receive from your word, uh, thankful hearts to receive um, just the good gift of uh, your grace in Christ, the kindness that you show to us by revealing through your word what we most need and how you supply what we most need through Christ, our Savior, our King, our Lord. We pray that you would give us conviction of sin. We pray that you would help us in humility run to the cross and find refuge there, reconciliation to you there, hope everlasting there, and that you would help us to leave more conformed to the image of your Son, more humbled before your word, more grateful, more attentive, more eager to serve with a whole heart. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're new to this, this class, this series, uh, last week we began a study called The Heart of the Kings, a, taking a sampling of 12 kings from all the kings of Israel and Judah, trying to def- draw one defining feature from each of their representative reigns, one defining truth about God that he's going to reveal through his response to their reigns, and then one defining need that I think we're meant to realize about ourselves from their stories. And so last week, we talked about King Saul and the fear of man and the delight of God. We saw how fear of man brings a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. We saw how in Saul's life, the fear of man dwarfed his fear of God, and that affected everything. It compelled him to offer a false sacrifice when he was supposed to wait. It expressed itself by him refusing to offer the sacrifice the Lord actually desired and wanted, the sacrifice of a contrite and obedient heart in response to his word. Because the Lord in 1 Samuel 14 and 15 had commanded Saul to wipe out the Amalekites and devote them and all of their property to destruction. And this wasn't just so that Israel could have more stuff. It wasn't so that Israel could have more loot, more land, more prestige, more status. It was to vindicate the name of the Lord, because the Amalekites had attacked Israel on their way out of Egypt and toward the promised land, and God took that personally, that this was an assault upon his name. And so he's going to commission Saul to go and wipe out Agag, the Amalekites, and all their property, to devote it to destruction. And Saul is going to stop short. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 9, It says, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Well, to God, it was all despised, but to Saul and the people, only some of it was despised. 
that for God, this wasn't about, okay, get rid of the ugly stuff and keep the good-looking stuff. This was about his name being vindicated in the world, his glory being exalted in the world. To God, it was all to be destroyed as a statement of his holy character and justice, but to Saul and the people, it was just loot. And so when it came time to devote it to destruction, it was like, oh, but there's some really good sheep here. There's some really good cows. There's a lot of stuff that could really make our life better. And so Saul just trimmed a little fat from the word of God, just lowered it, changed it to fit what he really wanted to do, to fit all what all the people really wanted him to do. And so now to an onlooking world, they're going, oh, this was just about looting enemies rather than the name of God. And so in verse 10, you see there that God is going to say to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king. Not that God didn't see it coming, not that this wasn't part of the plan, but again, God is revealing something about his own heart through the story. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And last week we looked at how Saul was oblivious to his sin. Oblivious to what his actions and inactions really expressed toward God. In verse 12, he set up a monument to himself. And in verse 13, he's going to come out to Samuel as if everything is just fine. He's going to say, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Compare that to verse 10 and what the Lord said. He has not performed my commandment. Yet here's Saul saying, I have performed. How scary is that? That we can actually go through our day thinking, I'm crushing it for Jesus here. And yet the Lord would have a different set of words. And that's why you have to pray, Lord, help me see what you see. Help me hear what you hear. Help me interpret life the way you interpret life, through the lens of your word. Because in verse 14, and Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Meaning the evidence of your disobedience is everywhere. Samuel's been there 30 seconds, and he can see it. It's all over the place. Um, great question. Six, thank you. Page six. And in verse 15, Saul says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Well, who's the they? All these people. They've brought them from the Amalekites, not we, they, for the people, not me, the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And we looked at sort of three things that Saul is saying here. One is, I'm not the main problem of my life. Everyone else is. <clears throat> Number two, my motivations are pure. 
it may look off, it may look bad, it may look wrong, but trust me, everything's okay. I've taken a look, and I assure you my motivation and my heart is good. And thirdly, it may look as if I stopped halfway, but my obedience is actually enough for God. That's the argument that Saul is making. I'm not the main problem. Everyone else is. My motivations are actually pure, even though it may look as if they're not. And my, mod- my obedience is actually complete, no matter what you think. And in verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, stop. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. All it takes is now God speaking. A witness to bear witness, to really expose our hearts through God's word. And so he's going to recount the story of the Lord making Saul king. The Lord sending him on a mission to vindicate the glory of his name. And then in verse 19, here's the hammer blow. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? We talked about how you see how very different those words are to the words that Saul was using. God's going to say, you didn't obey. You pounced on the spoil. You did what was evil. But then Saul's going to reply in verses 20 and 21, I have obeyed. I have gone. I have devoted. I have brought. But the people, and notice what he says, for the sake of sacrifice. He's even going to justify taking all that spoil because, Lord, that is actually in devotion to you. And this is how upside down we can get, is our lack of devotion to the Lord can actually look to us like devotion to the Lord. And that's how Saul's going to explain it. Still defending, arguing, managing image, managing impressions, because the fear of man brings a snare. And we talked about how, for many of us, our PR department in our life is grossly overstaffed. And our, you know, we have too many lawyers, not enough compliance officers, not enough auditors, not enough who bring the word of God and shine light so that we really see ourselves rightly before the Lord. Not for the sake of guilt, shame, running, and just collapsing in misery, but so that we would really see God's heart, our heart, and our need in the midst of all that. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning is firstly the heart of God revealed because that's going to provide the backdrop now for what the Lord wants to reveal about himself to us. 1 Samuel 15 verses 22 and 23. To where if we really want to know what God is like, what's important to him, we can just take these verses to heart. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Like you really want to know what God delights in, what he loves, what he values, It's not all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's obedience. 
It's not all the fat of rams. It's good listening. Verse 23, for, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption as, is as iniquity and idolatry. And what's fascinating is how, and just, it's not ironic that Saul's life is going to end going to see a medium in divination. Like that'll be his closing days of his life. Those will be one of his last acts is seeking a witch to hear words from God. And so you see it played out like his rebellion will, it's as the sin of divination and God's going to prove it to him. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He's also rejected you from being king. So four things I want us to reflect on about the Lord that I think are revealed in these couple verses. One is the mercy and patience of God. I think we should see that from this story. The mercy and patience of God. Number one, God sent Samuel, and that's very merciful. Samuel is talking to Saul and trying to help him see his sin. That's very patient. And in each of these moments, Saul has an opportunity. He can repent. He can grieve his sin. He can seek forgiveness. God could have just destroyed him. God could have just ended it and started over. But instead, God speaks. He counsels. He reveals himself in the midst of all of Saul's rebellion and idolatry and divination-like disobedience. And that's why just the fact that we have this Bible is a statement about the mercy of God, the grace of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God, that he wouldn't just leave us where we are in the dark, but that he would actually speak. He would send mouthpieces to reveal himself and us to us. You know, when Cain pouts about his sacrifice being refused in Genesis 4, 5, God speaks to him in Genesis 4, 6. After Cain murders his brother in Genesis 4, 8, God speaks to him in Genesis 4, 9. That's mercy. That's patience. What's Jesus going to say about just Israel, that how long has he held out his hands? And God's going to say, about Israel, how long has he held his hands out to this stubborn generation? Jesus say, how often I've wanted to just gather this people up, Jerusalem up, like a hand gathering chicks, but they're just not willing. The constant message of scripture, chapter after chapter, book after book, is God is merciful. He's patient. And that's what we see here in this story with Saul. Here in 1 Samuel 15, after Saul despised the word in the name of the Lord, God's going to send word to him through Samuel and give him an opportunity. We also see the delight of God in humble, obedient hearts. That's that point B there in your notes. That's something else that God's revealing about himself, is that he loves humble hearts that overflow with glad and happy obedience. He just loves that. That he delights in those who listen to his voice and heed his words. 
He delights in hearts that revere him, that long to please him, that he doesn't delight in lip service. He doesn't delight in just outward sort of performance of religious duty, but in heart, genuine, joyful, heartfelt devotion to him. And that's a theme of the whole Bible that we often misunderstand, that people in the Bible often misunderstood, is that God gives all these rules, all these laws, like a ladder that we climb to heaven. Rather than something that actually reveals his heart, exposes our heart, and helps us see that we need a new heart in order to relate to him the way he wants us to relate to him. The king that God would choose to replace Saul is going to come to really understand this. Listen to Psalm 51, verse 16, where David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God came to reveal that to David, and he believed it. As he's standing in the shadow of his sin with Bathsheba, as he's standing in the shadow of his murder of Uriah, David understands, Lord, you don't want me to bring a bunch of cows and sheep. What you want is a heart that is broken by my sin, that is contrite before you, humble before you, seeking mercy and grace from you. That you won't despise. Praise God. That's a theme of Saul's reign, David's reign, and the rest of Scripture. Because we all sin. We all, Romans 3.23, fall short of the glory of God. But then we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to admit it? Am I just willing to be honest about it? Do I grieve it? Scripture doesn't keep asking, hey, are you perfect? But firstly, are you humble? Not have you never sinned, but do you grieve it? Do you look to the one who can help you in it? Not are you self-righteous, but do you trust in imputed righteousness? And that's why Jesus is going to say things like, you got to come to me like a child, empty-handed, unable to save yourself, unable to feed yourself, unable to make yourself into what you need to be. He delights in humble hearts. Point C, he desires hearts fully given to him. Not just what does he delight in, but what does he now desire from us? <clears throat> humble hearts who tremble at his word, he's going to say through the prophets contrite hearts who own their sin, broken hearts who grieve transgression, impoverished hearts who refuse to trust in themselves, meek hearts who won't boast before the Lord and others, tender hearts who just long to please their maker, honest hearts who see and confess their need for his help, trusting hearts who look to him for forgiveness, who look to him for mercy, lowly hearts, who just long to see Christ increase and us decrease, 
especially in the eyes of people. It's one thing Saul refused. I will not diminish myself before others. I must be exalted in the eyes of people. Fearful hearts who regard God as holy, pure hearts who actually see his worth, his value, his glory. In other words, the Lord doesn't take delight in the outwardly religious, in the outwardly attractive, in the outwardly high performing, in the outwardly impressive to everybody else. Aren't we glad? That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, yeah, notice everybody, he didn't choose the impressive to the world. He chose the foolish, not the wise, to pour his salvation upon He delights in hearts given to him in faith. This is why even Jesus was so perfectly pleasing to the Father that he's going to humble himself, take on human flesh, live as a servant, obey him in everything, give his life as a ransom for many, all of it to please the Father. All of it in obedience to the plan and to the will of the Father. Like that's why... The father looks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Aren't we glad Jesus didn't stop short in doing what God called him to do or the father called him to do? I think fourthly, to see the seriousness of God about hearts given to rebellion. Notice again what he says in verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. What a statement that rebellion, he's saying, is basically the same as divination. For me to hear the commands of God, to love God, to love neighbor, to serve a brother, to forgive a sister, and then for me just to go, you know what? Nah, I'm not going to do that. He's saying, might as well practice witchcraft. It's the same basic heart posture. It's the same orientation toward God and everyone else. That in one level we can observe degrees of sin in scripture that actual idolatry is further down the staircase than fantasizing about idolatry. And so that's true, there are degrees of severity. And yet at the same time there's places where scripture talks about at a heart level, it's fundamentally the same. That an idolatrous fantasy at heart level is qualitatively the same as acting upon it, even if quantitatively it's different. That's humbling, right? That Jesus is going to say in Matthew 5 that you've heard it was said that thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you've committed murder. As Jesus is saying, at one level, at heart level, it's it's qualitatively the same strain. He says presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. idolatry. What he means is to sort of arrogantly reinterpret or proudly spin the word of God in order to make it mean what I want it to mean, in order for me to think, feel, and do what I want to think, feel, and do is to establish myself as Lord. 
myself as supreme. For God to say, well, this is what I want you to do, and for me to go, well, I think you really mean this. And for that to fit now, the life I want to live, is like, yeah, that's basically idolatry. To make the Bible say what I want it to say about marriage and divorce, about fornication and homosexuality, about anything to justify and sanctify what I want to do. What he's saying there, that is the height of insubordination to God. That's what Samuel's trying to convey to Saul here. That you rebel against the word of God in this one thing or practice witchcraft. It's basically the same. Because we're basically saying the same. Well, why is Saul saying this? Well, I think to, to give an opportunity for a certain kind of response in Saul and a certain kind of response in us. He's not, Samuel's not embellishing. He's not lying. He's speaking straight from God. And what should our response be? Well, it should be, oh, Lord, have mercy. It should be, oh, Lord, I'm a sinner. Show grace. That when we see the life and works of Saul, with whom we should closely identify, and we hear the revelation of God about himself, to whom we have no answer, I think we're meant to conclude that we're in big trouble. Like, really big trouble. I think that's the effect the law is meant to have on a human heart. But it's not meant to leave us there, which gets to this last significant section this morning of our need revealed. So I think we're meant to get to the end of verse 23 and be super clear on what need is being revealed. We can't trust ourselves to know what we need. We have to look to God to help us understand what we really need. Because that's where Saul's most mistaken is he thinks that both Samuel and God need to see the good in him. That's the first thing. Saul's arguing, no, no, Samuel, you don't understand. What I did was actually really good. Don't you see it? And can you go back and tell God that what I did was actually super obedient? And so he's under the impression that what he really needs is for God and Samuel to have a better opinion of him. And that's where most of us go wrong, right? That's why we try to clean the outside of the cup. You think, what I really need is for people to see me in a better light. Saul's arguing, you know, Samuel, actually, you and God both probably just need to chill out a little bit. You need to back off. You need to see the bright side. You need to realize that I'm actually a pretty good guy doing some pretty good stuff. But that's what you need to see. That's why the Lord's going to say to Saul, well, actually, you're like someone who practices witchcraft, an idolater, a rebel who deserves death. Because it was really clear in the law what happens to diviners and idolaters and witches and sorcerers. So again, this isn't God embellishing. This is God trying to help Saul see the reality of here's what you actually deserve. 
But then not just leave him there so that Saul would see, you need a savior. You need a redeemer. You need someone who can take your place and pay for your sin and give you a new heart and impute to you a righteousness you just don't have. Like that's what the story is begging Saul to do. And therefore, that's what the story is begging us to do. To see that what we actually need, point A there, is salvation from God. Look back at verse 22. And Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. Because I don't think we're meant to hear those words and go, okay, I guess I'll just need to try a little harder to keep the law. I guess I'll just need to try a little harder to not miss any of his commands. Because Saul should be realizing, okay, it's too late. That ship has sailed. Because by the time the Lord opened most of our eyes to our sin, we should realize, wait a minute, it's too late. I've already done it. And so what he's referring to here, I think, is the obedience of faith. At least that's what it's foreshadowing. That's what it's pointing to. The Apostle Paul, it says in Romans 1.5, was sent into the world to bring about the obedience of faith. Romans 1.5, Romans 16.26, they, they bookend the book of Romans. Where Paul's saying, this is a book that's meant to bring about the obedience of faith. Faith in the gospel. A faith that actually brings righteousness imputed. So though the Lord commanded Israel to bring offerings and sacrifices, they were always intended to be expressions of faith. They were meant to understand when they brought that animal to the temple, they were laying their own hearts on the altar. Because they were meant to realize, yeah, the blood of goats and bulls doesn't take away sin. This is a placeholder. This is pointing to another sacrifice that's coming that really takes away sin. And so every time an animal was offered in the tabernacle, it was always meant to be in faith. Every confession of sin was always meant to be in faith that, Lord, you can provide a substitute, an atonement, a forgiveness of sins. Micah 6, verse 6 With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You hear the scale that Micah is presenting? With what do I bring to the Lord to make it right? To reconcile us? How about burnt offerings? Well, how about calves a year old? Okay, how about thousands of rams? How about ten thousands of rivers of oil? How about my firstborn? And what we're meant to see and what Micah sees is it's not enough. It'll never be enough. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. 
And what he doesn't mean is just to be perfect in all your law keeping another way. No, he means to have a kind of heart before God that is a heart of faith, that is humble before him. And faith is working itself through love in your life. That all the commandments of Scripture, all the rules of God's word, all that he asks and requires of people, it all exists to reveal the glory of God, to bring us to God, to show us our sin before God, and then to highlight our need for God to make us right with God. Not for us to make it right by all the offerings that we bring. We need, point B there, a savior from God. We don't need a king after our heart. We don't need a God after our heart. We actually need all the public relations staff fired, right? Just get rid of them all in order to get a redeemer. We need forgiveness. That's the thing that Saul isn't comprehending. He doesn't need God to see him differently or Samuel to see him differently or people to see him differently. He needs grace. He needs forgiveness. And he wasn't the first or the last to make that mistake. This is the human condition. This is what every religion in the world tries to do is create a system where I can jump through the right hoops, take the right steps, that when I show up in heaven, God will be impressed. And he'll go, yeah, you, you did enough. You can make it. And what that is, is that's just dying with a hope that whoever God is in heaven, he's no better than you. That's, that's the hope we're actually dying in. Is that whoever he is, he must not be any better than me. If I can jump through all these hoops and keep all these rules, and he go, that's great, that's enough. Even in Jesus' day, this is what was misunderstood. Listen to Matthew 21. There's a triumphal entry where Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and it says, And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna means save now. Save now to the Son of David. Save from who? Who do you think they meant? Save from Rome. Save from Roman occupation. Save from geopolitical enemies. Save from circumstances. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why in their eyes is this Jesus blessed? Yeah, he's going to deliver us from our bad circumstances. He's going to deliver us from Rome. He's going to deliver us from all these things that we don't like. Hosanna in the highest. They're willing to exalt him. And when in Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I think this is, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one who's going to deliver what we really need. And in their mind, what is that? It's circumstantial relief. It's geopolitical salvation. Because in their minds, they've earned it. They've deserved it. Even just by being from Israel. And as Jesus entered the temple, 
Here's what he's going to do. It says, and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. What's going to, what's going to be his first act? This Messiah, King Jesus, they're receiving. Well, to cleanse the temple. Well, what's that symbolic of? This is actually the redeemer you need. This is the savior you need. He doesn't go to Pilate's house first. He goes to the temple. The symbol of where the presence of God meets these people. Where the people meet before God and he's going to say, this is the problem. As if to say, your hearts are the problem. And you don't need rescue from Rome, you need rescue from God. You need redemption. That's why Hebrews 10, 5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Does that sound familiar? That's what he said to Saul through Samuel. But then he says, But a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In other words, sacrifices and offerings serve their purpose, but then they give way to another sacrifice, to another offering, to the body of Jesus Christ who's actually going to absorb the wrath of God. In burnt offerings, the Father does not find pleasure, but in the obedience, in sacrifice of his son, he finds perfect pleasure. So every second of every day and every thought, every affection, under every circumstance, every trial, Jesus Christ obeyed the will of the Father perfectly. In Saul, God's going to give Israel the king they wanted, the king they deserved. In Jesus Christ, God gives the king we all need. A savior king, a perfectly obedient son of God king, a sinless lamb of God king. And he didn't revere man. That was proven through his whole life in ministry. He revered his father. He didn't live for carnal pleasures of humanity, but for the pleasure of his father. And so the body that the father had prepared for Jesus would be offered up on the cross as a substitute as a sacrifice, as an atonement for us. And remember, he's going to be crucified with what sign written over him? Yeah, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What did the Jewish leaders think about that sign? They're like, please don't put that up there. Why not? Because that is not the king we want to be associated with. And that's the decision of faith. In faith, we go, that's the king I want to be associated with. I don't want to be associated with Saul when this is over. The man after my own heart. I don't want to be associated with that kind of self-righteous, self-religion that Saul was pursuing. I want to be associated with this king who's, who dies in my place. And so even when Jesus came, they were still making the same mistakes that Saul was making. 
Under King Jesus, our sins are washed away. And so the gospel says, run to him, cling to him. Through King Jesus, our Heavenly Father puts his Holy Spirit into our hearts and gives us new hearts. That's what we really need. That's what the gospel really delivers. In King Jesus, we are not merely delivered from earthly enemies in the future. We're delivered from the wrath of God and forever. And so the gospel says, so fear him. But not a kind of fear that drives you away, the kind of fear that drives you to him, to seek refuge in him. Because Jesus Christ does not feed our sins or disobey God to claim our loyalty. Praise God he's not like Saul that way. Praise God that Jesus doesn't show up and go, what do y'all really want? Oh, y'all want the nice sheep and the oxen? Okay, that's what I'll give you. When we ask for that, he's like, yeah, no, that's not what I'm going to give you. Instead, I'm going to live righteously, die in your place, be raised. Through my spirit, give you a new heart to believe. And then I'm going to give you a cross to carry, to follow me. And so the gospel says, follow him, honor him as king. Because God delights in those who reverently receive his word with wholehearted obedience, and that obedience is wholehearted faith. That we hear his word and we believe it. We hit our knees before him, contrite over sin, and looking not for him to see us better, but for him to put us in Christ. And then will he see us differently? Absolutely. That when we stand before him on the last day, he will declare us righteous. He will see us as righteous. Why? Because we are in Christ. And so that's what Saul needed to see. That's what we have to see is, okay, Lord, I don't need you to just see me in a new light. I need you to see me in a new person. Covered in someone else's righteousness. So point C, we need new hearts from God. Hearts that fear God rather than man. Hearts that aim to please God rather than man. And so that's why the first step, even if you're here and you're not in Christ, is to turn from sin and trust in Christ. And that's the sign that the Holy Spirit's given us a new heart, has made us new. Yet John 5, 39, where Jesus says to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. What Jesus is saying, so if you're really searching the scriptures with a heart of faith, you should see that all the scriptures are bearing witness to me. It says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name. You don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. And then here's the key line. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The fear of man brings a snare. And what's the worst possible snare but to blind us to our need for Christ and to blind us to who Christ is? 
And so when the Lord gives us a new heart, he gives us new eyes, new ears, where we actually see Christ for who he is. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we need new hearts from God, and then finally, we need sanctification and spiritual growth from God. Even receiving new hearts in Christ, we need his grace for those hearts to grow. For sanctification to progress. It's slow, but it's certain. We need faith to work itself out through love in our life continually. And for that to keep growing. This is Colossians 1 verse 9 where Paul says, And so from the day we heard... We've not ceased to pray for you, meaning the Colossians, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what we needed. That when we read the story of Saul and see what he thought he needed and how God responded to him and revealed what he really needed, We're meant to go, okay, that's what I need. A new heart in Christ, humbled before Christ, trusting in Christ, submitted to Christ, joyful in Christ. Because it's in Christ that I get transferred from the kingdom of Saul, the domain of darkness, to the kingdom of the beloved son, Jesus Christ. And so what we'll do now is, again, pause and just take the next 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, and just divide again into a group of five or six. There's three points of discussion there um, in your notes. And just to take the next 15 minutes or so and just talk through some of those questions as a group. And then at the conclusion of that time, I'll come up and pray to close us. All right, so let's jump into those groups now.